So I can remember my father was up for parole in 2020 and they handed down the, the, the decision in 2021. And when that decision came down that they were not gonna release my father on parole, I got several messages on social media from people saying, congratulations. And I was like, what are they talking about? They said, well, congratulations. They, they didn't let him out on parole. They didn't give him parole. And I said to the people, I said, you know, thank you. I appreciate your sentiment, but congratulations is someone who gets a job promotion, who has a amazing stroke of luck and gets a hole in one. Uh, they win the lottery. Congratulations is not an appropriate response when somebody who's destroyed so many lives is forced to stay in prison where they were sentenced to decades earlier. Because in the end, with all of this, nobody wins. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself. And it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Hey, movers. Welcome back to another episode of Moving Past Murder. I'm your host, Collier Landry, and what's going on? What a week. What a week. It is Friday, March 3rd. I am another year older, officially. I had a wonderful birthday celebration on Tuesday which is my birthday, February 28th. And to those of you that reached out and said, happy birthday, thank you so much. It was so kind of you. To those of you who have recently subscribed to my YouTube channel because the whole thing just blew up last week. And thank you all for joining me on the program. I really appreciate it. I appreciate all the engagement with my content because you know I've recently started talking about this Murdaugh case, which is now over. Well, sort of over, I suppose. But I, uh, you know, uh, this whole... This whole podcast is devoted to exploring trauma and trauma recovery and moving past murder. And for me in particular, the murder of my mother by my father and how that, that impacted not only my life, but the lives of those around me. I made a film called A Murder in Mansfield. And I've been talking about these things for a very long time. And so for you guys to discover and engage with that content is really, really cool. I'm so glad people are enjoying the podcast. Uh, so as I started at the top of this, Alex Murdaugh has been convicted of the double murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. And uh, that happened yesterday, March 2nd. And today, this morning, he was sentenced by the judge to two consecutive life sentences for both the murders. As I will say, as I've always said, I know there are a lot of people that are very excited and very happy they were joyful that there was a verdict that was reached that they felt was favorable favorable to them and the conviction of, of Murdaugh. But as someone who has lived through the murder of his own mother and seen the impact of all of this, 
it is a very unfortunate situation all around. And I never want us to lose sight of that. It's a very unnecessary loss of life on so many levels with so many people. And, you know, this all started with the, I feel like the first domino to really fall in all of this was the death of Mallory Beach and that boating accident that happened with uh, Paul Murdaugh and then his subsequent arrest slash non-arrest and the way that his family was treated because of their hundred years in power down there in Walterboro, South Carolina and in the low country. And it just began to expose and unravel this little thread that just got kind of pulled, pulled out and exposed years and years of corruption and cover-ups from, you know, obviously the the death of Randolph Murdaugh Sr., uh, you know, in the train accident and then the lawsuits against CSX Railroad. But then you have the legacy of how that built the family's law pra- practice and had them rise to wealth and power down there. But also you have these crimes that, that Alex Murdaugh, who was for a long time a very accomplished trial attorney, how he just began ripping people off. And as I spoke about last week, a lot of that is centered on what I believe is centered on his opioid addiction. And I know that they, the defense tried to use that because weirdly, <laughs> Murdaugh took the stand in his own defense. The same thing my father did, which was, I believe, ultimately everyone's. Well, ultimately, their downfall is because they committed a crime, right? And they're guilty of the crime. Going to bat for yourself when you are a complete and total liar is very dangerous. Well, I mean, very dangerous if you want your freedom. It's great. It's great because I often say to people a lot of times when I talk about like narcissism, overcoming and outwitting people who are just downright nefarious, if you give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves. They really will. Because when people think they're going to get away with something uh, that is so heinous, they really do leave a trail of crumbs through the woods. Uh, My father did it. You know, there's there's many episodes in this podcast. Most recently, I speak with a judge, Judge Henson, from my father's trial. And he tells me about things of my father even leaving his ID for cold storage so he could store my mother's body while he prepared her grave underneath the house that he bought. Having his mistress sign, you know, N. Sherry Boyle. My mother's name was Noreen Schmid Boyle to pull off on documents. All these things are just, they're just these trail of breadcrumbs. And I feel that Alex Murdaugh, of course, was no was no stranger to this. On top of that, he's just a drug addict. And something that was really interesting that the judge said uh, today at the sentencing was that he was a monster. Maybe he felt because Murdaugh was trying to plead, I'm innocent. I never killed anybody. I never killed Papa. I never killed Maggie. And I tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never under any circumstances hurt my wife Maggie and I would never under any circumstances hurt my son Papa. He said, well, maybe it wasn't you and I've seen this in so many cases before, but it was the monster that is you from taking 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills a day. You become this monster, right? And it might not have been you. It might have been... The monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills 
maybe you become another person. Um, I've seen that before. The, you know, the, the person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it's the same individual. Um, we'll leave that at that. In talking about this case, just with friends and family, over the last several weeks, you know, something something somebody told me that I thought was really funny is they said this was the iPhone <laughs> the iPhone case and I believe that this was the first major like prominent murder trial I mean I'm sure there's been plenty of other ones but where they used phones to really track the scene of the crime because unbeknownst to everyone if your phone is off it can still work <laughs> it can still be tracked and just the defense was so unable to ex to explain away so many things just to the simple fact of how did Alex Murdaugh's voice get on the Snapchat video of Paul on Paul's phone right before he was murdered, as the prosecution said, when he was in the kennel, in the cage with the dog, with the bird or the chicken, how did he, he said he was in the house sleeping and then he's, his voice is on the voice recording on the Snapchat. I realize this wasn't, you know, this was something that wasn't even part of the initial investigation. They they discovered this, I believe, like six months later or something. There's so many things that are really hard to explain away. And there was something that somebody was mentioning. It's a very common thread in narcissistic liars and perpetrators. My father did this. Apparently, Alex Murdoch clearly did this. It's the same thing. And I'm going to read it right here. So they said something that was really interesting. And when you think about how, how deceptive practices work with these perpetrators, they said, honest people try to convey liars try to convince. And I heard this reporter saying this on CNN. And I thought that's absolutely true because my father did the same thing. My father on the witness stand, and I'll, I'm going to play a clip in a second. My father on the witness stand tried to convince the jury of his story. Whereas people who are innocent or people who are not lying, rather, people who are telling the truth are trying to convey their point of view, not convince you of it. They're trying to convey it like, hey, this is where I was coming from. Please don't misconstrue this. And there's something that's called statement analysis. And I'm going to pull up the Wikipedia definition of statement analysis, which is statement analysis, also called scientific content analysis or scan, is a technique for analyzing the words people use to try to determine if what they said is accurate. Proponents claim that this technique can be used to detect concealed information, missing information, embedded confessions, and whether the information that person has provided is true or false. Proponents say statement analysis has proven effective as a police interrogation technique, but critics argue that it has not been subjected to objective analysis with most of the studies falling or failing to have used any outside criteria to confirm whether the statements were actually true or false. So it sort of falls into, I guess, a skeptics would say a pseudoscience, if you will. Yeah, I suppose so. But the thing that that was discussed by the by this particular journalist on CNN is they said because everybody kept saying Alec Murdoch is 
he's he talks so much on the witness stand and he volunteers so much information. And I think anyone who's ever been arrested or anyone who's ever faced anything with police is like, don't talk to the police. Get a lawyer. Let you, you know, don't talk to the police. They can tell you anything. They can say, oh, we're going to let you out, man. Just tell me what happened and we'll let you go. That's complete rubbish. And for those of you that don't know that, the police can lie to you. They are not held to any sort of code of ethics in that way. If they arrest you and they say, hey, buddy, we're going to let you go. Just tell us what happened here and, and you can go home. That's not true. Call a lawyer. I'm not a legal. I'm not somebody to advise you. I am not a lawyer. I am not. But that is just the facts. The police can, can do that because they're trying to gather evidence. And that's within their, their legal right. So there's a lot of talk about how he would use these, you know, a lot of hyperbole, like saying things like unequivocally or absolutely not. And he was really overselling his point. And my father did the same thing on the witness stand. My father, for those of you that uh, watch this program and have listened to me sort of dissect my father's letters from prison, it's always this massive denial and just sort of delusions of grandeur. Uh, I have an episode... Uh, 20 or 30 episodes ago called The Tape. And my father talks, just spins these web of just absolute crazy lies. It's unfortunate because they they really do believe that they, you are believing and buying their story because they're so good at it. And to, to be honest, they really are good at it. It's It's really, it's just so unfortunate to me that, and again, I know a lot of people are rejoicing in the fact that this, that there is some sort of, there's some sort of sense of justice here, not only for Pat, Paul and Maggie, but let's not forget there is a housekeeper who died mysteriously. There is a young man, Stephen Smith, who died suspiciously that is somehow tied to the, to the Murdoz. And then there's the death of Mallory Beach. There's an interesting documentary that came out, I believe last week on Netflix so the filmmakers who made this this film, uh, Jenner First and Julia Willoughby Nason, they talk about how there are potentially even more things that they uncovered about the Murdaws and their crimes and that can even go up to the federal level. They were interviewed in Variety talking about this. I mean, this, the legacy of corruption in this family is staggering and it makes me think back to my own my own family right and i i spoke about you know the, the guilt and the shame and at the end of the day there are many people that can give analysis on this but i can absolutely with 100 authority tell you what it is like to have your father murdered your mother and so i see buster Murdaugh in the courtroom and He's listening to literally a, a defense witness sort of rebut the prosecution's witness of how his brother was shot. Was it from the top down or was it from up? Just how gruesome that is. And he's almost just like, he's so disengaged or dissociated with what's being said because it's so gruesome. And how... How do you pick up the pieces from this? How does one move? Like, what does moving on look like? Your entire family has been disgraced in a town where you were, as they say in Italian, the Pezzargoso, the big shots. You guys ran the show. 
And now the fall from grace is is so far. And then there's a lot of speculation that Paul or that that Buster had something to do with this this Stephen Smith uh, gentleman who who was who was killed. And I, I can tell you that picking up the pieces is really difficult. And with my father, look, I testified against my father. I know my father murdered my mother. There's no doubt in my mind. And yeah, you know, my father for years and, and most famously in my film has said no, and it's an accident and this, that, and the other. I mean, the story always changes, right? The story has evolved over three decades, really. And because he never said at trial, hey, uh, this was an accident. I pushed her. She hit her head. I didn't know what to do. I panicked. It was always denied, denied, denied. She got into a car at the end of the driveway and she she left and mysteriously. And then she ends up dead underneath his house. So there, uh, and then of course, for years and years and years, he's also floated conspiracy theories, police involvement, things like that. Somehow my involvement in it, whatever that might be. Just absolute lunacy. But the thing is, is that on the witness stand and with the defense in this case, they never ever offered up another suspect. They never said Alex or Alec Murdoch could not have done this because someone else did it. They never did that. And why is that? And again, when I talk back about the, to get back to my point on the iPhone trial, they literally have footage showing where these murders took place because everybody's got their phone on them and it's and, and there are people that can elaborate way more on this than I can that's for sure but it was really hard when you're and and not only that Alec Murdoch is on the witness stand saying that he lied to investigators and told, did not tell them that he was down by the kennels when, that ever he, he said he never went down to the kennels So the stranger thing is that Alec Murdoch, who is on the witness stand in his own defense, is literally saying that he lied to investigators and that he lied. And, and the prosecution during cross-examination, they just started reading off a list of names. Did you lie to this person? Did you lie to this person? Yes, I lied to this person. Yes, I lied to this person. And he even goes as far as to admit that he stole all this money from his clients, something that he's going to be tried for in a whole other series of cases. I believe there's a hundred some charges pending from him robbing all these, these people. And he even talks about it and says, oh, I felt really sorry for them. It's like, dude, what are you, man, what are you talking about? You robbed these people to fuel your addiction. And I think that when you look at all this, there's just, how do you believe somebody that that says and, and I think when you look at this, you know, they interviewed today on CNN, one of the, the, or sorry, good morning America or something, one of the jurors who was there and there was a lot of speculation on it. Well, how could they arrive with a verdict so quickly? They were in the room for, you know, he, he claims that they had a verdict within the first 45 minutes to an hour and they only took three hours to deliberate now apparently if you're on a jury you're supposed to go back through all of the evidence but he said everybody they were all convinced after 45 minutes to an hour of discussing all this that he was guilty 
He said two jurors came in and said he's not guilty. One juror said, I don't know. And then they all came to the conclusion 45 minutes, an hour later that he was in fact guilty. And then that's what they, that was their verdict, right? It's very, I mean, there are many, there are trial attorneys that are saying, oh, this is a miscarriage of justice. And how could they do this? They're supposed to actually review the, the documents and go, and they weren't supposed to be discussing. And there was a juror yesterday before they went to deliberations that was excused on the day that they were, because she was apparently buying eggs or something in a grocery store and was caught talking to someone. And literally on the last day, they, she gets dismissed and they have to use the alternate juror to come in. And there's a, you know, obviously online, there's massive conjecture, massive speculation. Was this guy or was this woman, the one person who's going to say he's not guilty and there's going to be a mistrial. What did that look like? But again, I think you have to go back to the faxes. He admits on the witness stand that he lied to many people. He admits that he, he stole money from all of these clients, which I know that the prosecution and of course, the defense is crying foul after the fact saying they use the financial disclosures of his, of his mendacious behavior. I know that the defense has been crying foul because they said that it shouldn't have been allowed by the prosecution or should have been allowed in court that all of these financial crimes and his mendacious behavior around all of this uh, had anything to do with the, the murder charges and probably not, but it also proves a history and a character of his deception. And he's admitting deception on the witness stand. He admitted that he stole that money. He's like, but I wasn't lying when I'm not lying. When I said I killed my wife and my son, what are people supposed to think? And that to me is ultimately his downfall. So how, what does this look like for their family? And, and what is my opinion on that? And my take is that again, and it is going to take so much time for this family to heal for this community, because the, the deception and the betrayal to not only obviously his family and murdering his wife and his son but also to his brothers and sisters, but to his own, you know, surviving son. And then to the people in the community that I probably at, at one point in time or another trusted them and relied on them. They had a law firm. People went to them. They, they won, they quote unquote won money. It just means that he pocketed it and spent it himself, but they were able to prevail on cases for people who were filing, you know, uh, lawsuits against companies are being injured and accidents and things of that nature. So it's going to take so long for this community to heal. And then there are all of these other charges floating out there with the theft of the money. And what does it look like moving on from now with the deaths of Stephen Smith, Gloria Satterfeld, Mallory Beach? Where is, I guess, where is their justice? Are they supposed to, are, are people involved with those families and the parents and the loved ones, are they supposed to just take solace in the fact that he was convicted for these murders and they may never get the answers that they want. And as someone who spent the majority of his adult life, really trying to get answers 
trying to find out why my father murdered my mother so far as to move to Los Angeles and become a filmmaker and create a film so I could sit down in a room and have a conversation with him and say, why did you, I want to know why you murdered my mother. The process of processing this is a lifetime for the families of the victims. It's a lifetime for Buster Murdaugh, whether blood is on his hands or not, that's not for me to speculate or say the healing is going to be, it's going to take a lifetime. It's going to, it's an uphill battle. It's a hard road to hoe. No amount of therapy can take away these feelings. No amount of justice will ever vindicate anyone. For now, this sentence of two consecutive life terms for the murder or murders, they're going to have to do. And it's not a fun feeling. Now, this is fun. You know, it was interesting. So I can remember my father was up for parole in 2020 and they handed down the, the, the decision in 2021. And when that decision came down that they were not going to release my father on parole, I got several messages on social media from people saying, congratulations. And I was like, what are they talking about? They said, well, congratulations. They, they didn't let him out on parole. They didn't give him parole. And I said to the people, I said, you know, thank you. I appreciate your sentiment, but congratulations is someone who gets a job promotion, who has a amazing stroke of luck and gets a hole in one. Uh, they win the lottery. Congratulations is not an appropriate response when somebody who's destroyed so many lives is forced to stay in prison where they were sentenced to decades earlier. Because in the end, with all of this, nobody wins. Alex Murdaugh doesn't win. His family doesn't win. The families of the victims that have come before those in his family, they don't win. The victims of his financial crimes don't win. The community doesn't win. Nobody wins. And this is going to be something that the community is going to have to really move past. And as I said, it's, it's a hard road to hoe. And I don't, I don't wish it on anybody. That's for sure. On that note, I'm Collier Landry. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. This podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible. Find us on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash Collier Landry. The film A Murder in Mansfield is available on Investigation Discovery, Discovery Plus, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio. Innocent.